0: Um, well, tonight we are um, asking the question, why be Baptist? And um, um, I, I guess I realize for some of you this is why I stay Baptist, and uh, so that's a good question. Barry, uh, our, I like to call Barry our minister of facilities here at First Baptist Church, our amazing custodian. He, he's a member and a deacon over at Payton Baptist Church, but came tonight and he said, I'd like to know why I'm a Baptist beyond just why. My mama told me I was a Baptist when I was born, and I said, well, if that answer wasn't good enough for a whole lot of folks, we'd be out of business. So I'm real thankful for those of you uh, whose mama told you you were a Baptist and that was, that was good enough. Um, and the, the, uh, the subset of that category, those of you whose wife told you you were going to be Baptist, I'm thankful for you as well. So uh, anyway, all that being said, um, part of what we want to do tonight is just talk a little bit about... Just a little. This is a real brief sketch about sort of how Baptists got to the shores of America. We won't be able to, we don't really have time to talk about Baptist history in America, but we'll talk a little bit about Baptist origins. And then I'm going to spend some time talking about Baptist distinctives. Just what is it that makes Baptists distinct as Baptists, as a a faith tradition? Um, I think it's important to remember that um, from the outset that, Um, being Baptist is different than being a lot of other denominations because um, by our very nature we're not a top-down hierarchical denomination so in that sense we're really not a denomination we're not part of a denomination as a church even though it's often called a denomination we're part of a convention of churches and we'll talk a little more about Baptist cooperation what that looks like Um, and and no Baptist cooperation is not an oxymoron okay so we do we do cooperate and uh, but it'll It'll be a joy to think through those things, but it's important to remember that um, that any sort of Baptist union that exists, any sort of Baptist association, so to speak, or, or convention is, um, is 100% um, um, willful. We, we choose to be part, a part of those things, and any Baptist church at any moment could choose not to. So uh, that's important to bear in mind as we think through these things. All that being said, just a brief word about how things will go tonight. I'm going to w- walk through. Um, I'm, I'm planning on, you know, 30, 35 minutes um, for us to, to to walk through this sort of talk about why i be Baptist. And then at the end, I'll open up the floor for any sort of, of discussion uh, that you might want to have. So in particular questions, I'd be glad to answer any questions you have. This is being recorded, and we will post this online um, presumably, I think Cole normally posts all the Wednesday night stuff on Monday, so he'll probably do this tomorrow as well. So this will probably be available tomorrow. And um, if you have a hard time finding it or anything like that, just shoot uh, us an email or a text and we'll, we'll give, get you the link. So we're, we're pretty good about tracking those things down. Let me, let me pray for us and we'll get started tonight. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for bringing us all together tonight. And God, I thank you for the tradition of, of uh, Baptists. And Lord, I thank you for... Um, all the ways that you have used Baptists to nurture me and to raise me in the faith. And Lord, we're thankful for the way that the gospel has gone forth in Baptists. At the same time, Father, um, please always remind us that the kingdom is bigger than us. And so, Father, we're so thankful for those who you think differently, who understand the Bible differently than us. In fact, God, that's part of what it means for us to be Baptists, is we, we hold high the right of each and every individual to uh, read and interpret the Bible themselves by the Holy Spirit and understandably Lord in a fallen world we're going to come to different conclusions on things but help us always to remember Father uh, that it's the Bible to which we owe our first loyalty uh, the Bible as you've given us um, through your son and by your spirit so in Jesus name we pray amen Um, where did all these Baptists come from and uh, I think it's a good question and Something we should consider uh, as we begin this um, discussion. Uh, the first thing I'll mention is the earliest groups of Baptists were called Anabaptists. Um, this is a group that um, existed even before the Reformation. So this would have been in Middle Age Europe uh, groups of what we might call anti-Pado-Baptists. So Pado-Baptism is the practice of baptizing, b- baptizing children whereas credo-baptism is the position Baptists hold to, which is um, um, baptizing the baptizing of believers who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the word Anabaptist means baptize again. So those who were early Pado baptists would have called these groups who didn't practice um baptists Anabaptists because they would have been raised in the church and then they decided to, quote, be baptized again. Now, uh, we resent that. That's why we call ourselves Baptists, because we say there's only one baptism, right? And, uh, uh, and of course, we would say that the the right baptism is a baptism according um, to Scripture. So in Europe, you had a group of of, of folks that developed called the Anabaptists, one prominent, and, and I'm going to have to just mention these historical figures in passing. I'll, I'll mention just a couple of things. If you ever want to go deeper in this, maybe at some point I may offer a training new class on the history of the Baptists um, we'll just see. It depends on how many how many people um, really want to do that, but um, we will go deeper into a lot of these names and figures and thoughts in my church history class that's offered from time to time, so you may want to sign up for church history. Have any of you taken church history with me before? Church history? Yeah, so it's a great class. Um, I think a couple of people thought I meant like the history of this church or, or whatever, and uh no, we're talking about the ch- history of the church. Even though the history of this church is really important, we have a book for that if you're interested. Uh, but um, this is the history of the whole church. I offer that periodically in training. You you might want to dig into that if you want to go deeper. I can also recommend further reading on some of these issues. But I'll mention one Anabaptist that you might find of interest. One was named Minos Simons, um, and and early Anabaptists were manifested some some very strong tendencies toward one Baptist distinction. We'll talk about in a moment which is separatism um now i think when you first hear separatism your first thought is that just means baptists want to be separate from everyone else but it's not that exactly it's the idea that we want to make sure that we're distinct from the world and that the church is distinct from the world so if you think about it in europe in um 15 or 1600 everyone who was born essentially would have been a member of the church right they would have been baptized as an infant they are all members of the church um, so early Anabaptists wanted to make sure we were distinguishing uh, between someone who had been born again and who was in the true church and someone who was just part of the world. So, so this is part of a suite of thoughts that begin the Baptist tradition. So Menno Simons, eventually uh, his theology and thinking gave group. To gave birth to a group that came to be known as Mennonites which is a group that still exists to this day so um, a lot of Amish and Mennonite groups are born out of what we would call the Anabaptist tradition so these are people who during the Reformation before the Reformation simply became uh, convinced of credo-baptism as opposed to paedo-baptism then in the uh, 1500s Um, uh, a bomb goes off in Europe, so to speak. A theological bomb goes off in Europe when Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Now, to to be honest, there are a lot of things that had already happened as a precursor to this event, but this is what really ultimately was the the, um, detonator, so to speak, for the Reformation, what we call the Protestant Reformation. And so these thoughts of Luther and Reformation thoughts Again, if you want to go a little deeper on the Reformation, um, there's a talk I've given in the past on the Reformation. I've done a little bit of a sermon series on the five souls of the Reformation. And then certainly in church history, you'll you'll learn more about that. But those thoughts begin to disseminate through Europe. And because um, of religious persecution of people who held to uh, the views of the Reformation, um, those ideas often would spread pretty quickly because people from certain countries would wind up in other places where they might be seeking asylum or seeking religious liberty. One group that's sort of born out of the Reformation is a group called the Puritans. Anybody here ever heard of Puritanism or the Puritans? Um, usually in our culture uh, when you hear anything about Puritanism it's exclusively negative um, unless you're talking to Ben or me or somebody like that. And um, But the Puritans were by and large a reform movement um, throughout um, uh, that's really rooted in the Reformation, and they were not always leaving the church they were a part of. So many Puritans were part of the Church of England. Others did become separatists and left the official state church and started independent churches. But, but it's more of a general reform movement that's focused not only on strong theology, but, uh, but not uniform theology, mind you. Not all the Puritans walked in lockstep on every point of theology, but it was a spiritual renewal movement that happened so reformation thought and puritan thought eventually see washes onto the shores of england and you have people who begin then to um have a a milieu of thought a sort of puritan thought uh, ideas of revival and spiritual renewal not just having a state church not certainly not having a Perfunctory church where we have just sort of a superficial understanding of things, and certainly not the sort of mandatory state church that you would have understood. So, Puritanism often kicked against um, that that sort of formality. But then, second of all, um, you also had Reformation ideals that started to crop up um, that included some some reformation of Catholic teaching, and then third of all, you had people reevaluating views on. Uh, paedo baptism, um, and once you start reevaluating the state church, a lot of times re-evaluing, reevaluating, reevaluating, paedo baptism comes right after. So two groups of Baptists, then what we now know as Baptists, and frankly, Baptists in America are primary forebears. While the Anabaptist tradition we're thankful for, and we can certainly trace some of our roots back to there, primarily uh, in America, and especially for us as First Baptist Church, as part of broader Southern Baptist churches, we can, we can really trace our roots and our identity back to the British Baptists. Okay, and There are two, two groups of British Baptists that begin to emerge. One in the mid-1600s um, or late, mid-late 1600s were the general Baptists. Um, and these would have been, so when you hear general Baptist, you want to think about a group of Baptists that was a little more Armenian in their theology. That is, had a little bit higher view of free will Uh, um, um, a higher view of some of those things as opposed to a more Calvinistic theology um, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, One prominent General Baptist was John Smith, S-M-Y-T-H. He lived from 1565 to 1612. And another was Helwes, uh, and he was 1550 to 1616. So Smith and Helwes were were well known as sort of some of the early uh, figures in the General Baptist movement. Over time... The general Baptist movement went through different sort of iterations, eventually, in the end, merged with the other group of Baptists by the end. Um, it was a little bit more of a focus on revival and spiritualism, a little lower view of theology, and that's a little bit of a, a general statement. Um, and by the end, they wound up looking a lot like the other group. Um, they, they wound up looking a lot alike. So the, the, the differences that I'm teasing out were more characteristic early on. Over time, they start to look more and more like each other. Um, the second group of Baptists that in the early to mid-1600s starts to develop is a group called the Particular Baptists. So this is going to be a more Reformed or Calvinistic group of Baptists. Uh, one, uh, one thing to note about the Particular Baptists is that they um, not everyone who was a Particular Baptist was generally more Calvinistic and, and vice versa with General Baptists, but that was by and large kind of how things looked. But you did have a stream um, in um, the particular Baptist world of what in historically we would now look back and call high Calvinists. This is some people have called this hyper-Calvinism over time. So this is when so some of you um, when you hear the word Calvinism, you start to get real spooked, and that's understandable. But what you're probably spooked by is hyper-Calvinism or high Calvinism. These are the things that we start to worry about when people have such a view of God's sovereignty that they begin to downgrade a view of man's responsibility. So these are the kind of folks who are going to tend to not want to offer the gospel to everyone because they don't know who's elect or not, which is a silly thing biblically, I think. Uh, These are the people who take their system and let it start to dictate back to the Bible. Uh, These are the kind of folks who don't believe in missions. These are the kind of folks who who become almost fatalists uh, in their, their view of God's sovereignty. I think it's unbiblical, and and many particular Baptists fought hard against hyper-Calvinism. One in particular that I'd like to mention is Andrew Fuller. Andrew Fuller uh, wrote a a book called The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. I've read some of Fuller's sermons. Um, He was a really warm pastoral guy, Uh, but he battled hyper-Calvinism. I think a member of his church had fallen into sin. And basically said, well, this is God's will anyway. And that's really what woke him up to the dangers of, of hyper-Calvinism. And so he began to fight against it in that way. So Fuller was an example of someone who was certainly reformed in his theology or Calvinistic in his theology, but fought really hard against hyper-Calvinism, right? The, the, the problematic views of that. Another person who you need to know that's from the particular Baptist uh, stream is William Carey. Anybody ever heard the name William Carey before? Uh, we William Carey's the father of the modern missions movement and so William Carey was generally reformed or Calvinistic in his theology and helped launch what's called the the modern missions movement helped launch the Baptist Mission Society that went to send missionaries all over the world so um, he was another particular Baptist probably the most famous of all the particular Baptists uh, was Charles Haddon Spurgeon um, who lived 1834 to 1892 he was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London His sermons were were published all over the world. And again, uh, Spurgeon was an example of Baptist um, um, evangelical theology, uh, reformed theology, but also at the same time very, very, Spurgeon was um, very anti against hyper-Calvinism or any sort of system or understanding of theology that would downplay the free offer of the gospel. So uh, that's sort of the group in England. What happens then is um, by the time the colonies exist, our world exists um, as we know it, so to speak. Um, Particular churches by 1790 had about 58,000 members in the colonies. The earliest Baptists here were general Baptists, but it didn't really take off in the early days. But then by 1790... The group that had the most sort of traction in the United States were particular uh, Baptists um, and and our stream of tradition um, here at First Baptist Church, our history, if you look back, kind of who we were founded by, who our earliest pastors were, and most Southern Baptist churches, the Southern Baptist Convention, was sort of born out of particular Baptists in the United States out of that stream so um, Baptists were largely in a lot of ways um, sort of outcasts in the colonies, much like they were in Europe, Um, especially in Virginia. Baptists actually experienced persecution in Virginia. And so early Baptists here in the United States fought really hard for religious liberty. And that's one of the reasons why we don't have a state church in the United States of America. Um, um, In fact, it was a group of Baptists um, who uh, sent... Uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, the big block of cheese the big wheel of cheese for any of you West Wing fans uh, if you know about big block of cheese day or whatever anyway that's that's neither here nor there but uh, as a thank you for his efforts in religious liberty and when um, uh, one of Jefferson's most famous letters about the separation of church and state um, where he's quoted a lot that was actually a letter he wrote to Baptists uh, as a as a reassurance to them that there wouldn't be a state church. Now, why would Baptists, it's kind of weird to us now, right? Because we kind of uh some Baptists kind of look back over their shoulder and wish we had a little more of a state church. Why would Baptists be disinterested uh in having a state church? Well, it wouldn't have been Baptists, guys, right? It would have been the Church of England, uh, which is what it was in Virginia. And listen, I've got dear friends, I've preached in Anglican churches, I have dear friends here, at Anglicans, but um, you know, if, if, it, if we had a state church, you know, it wouldn't be cheesecake and coffee. We'd all be uh, drinking tea and eating watercress sandwiches tonight with our pinkies out. And so uh, we should praise God um, for that. <laughs> One of my, I had lunch with a friend of mine who's an, an Anglican uh, pastor. And we went out to eat lunch. And I sat down and uh, we ordered. And he ordered like a brisket sandwich or something. And I told him, I said, man, am I relieved, you know. I really thought you were going to be eating a cucumber sandwich or something out here. And uh, he got a big kick out of that. Um, But I I say all that to say, Baptists were very interested in religious liberty early on because, um, for example, in Virginia, same as it was in England, oftentimes you would need a a certificate from the state to be able to preach, a license to preach the gospel. That wasn't something that the deacon signed uh, in the 1700s in Virginia. That's something that the governor signed. And uh, that the government required of you to be able to preach. And so for us, that's unthinkable, right? To need a license to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ as Baptist. But then if you preach without a license, if you preach without state approval, you could be thrown in jail. And there are stories of early Baptists being thrown in jail. So that's why early Baptists were passionate about um, religious liberty. So that's just a brief sketch of a little bit about just Baptist history and where Baptists came from kind of wanted you to know just a little bit of the history of how all these baptists washed up on shore and and then they really we've grown significantly from then of course and i think you're going to see why as i think you can see a little bit of it in our history where we've always been passionate about the gospel the free offer of the gospel about spreading the gospel about missions and you can see it in some of our distinctives as well but before we move into baptist distinctives is there anything i can clarify or anything i can help with before we move forward about what we've talked about so far any questions so far How many seconds is it they say to wait with? 15? It's longer than 60 seconds. If you actually want somebody to ask you, you're supposed to wait a long time. I'm not afraid to be awkward. (laughs) I won't wait 60 seconds, but are there any questions? Yes, Sharon. Yeah, the first, that's right, so the, no, that's accurate, yeah, so that's one of the earliest, Baptists was in Rhode Island, yeah, the first Baptist church in America, that's right, yep, Roger Williams. I'm trying to remember if Williams was a particular, a general Baptist, uh, I, I'm not sh- totally sharp on that history at this moment, but the sort of movement of churches which we're a part at this point, point. and that's, that's another thing, it becomes a challenge with Baptist history, Right? is who really are our forebears i mean really uh uh it's not as clear as it is in a lot of other groups and denominations because each church is independent um it's really been in in very recent years it's been really clear the providence of any given church the southern baptist convention helped plant this church or this association helped plant this church or whatever else in those early days those associations weren't as clear if that makes sense. So I don't, I'm not super sharp on my history, but if you'll remind me, Sharon, I'll try to look that up and try to re- remind, remind myself of that. You mentioned two terms that are divisive and that we we, we tend to get really upset about. Them, sure. And Calvinism. Right. So when did that start? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt, I guess. When did the people start getting, did people start kind of having challenges with that? Um, That's a a pretty modern phenomenon. I mean, there've always been debates about Calvinism. Um, Well, I guess they've been—you know—people have been angry about theology the whole time, Bill. Uh, Any kind of theology, you know. Um, um, And um, so, yeah, the question is: When did the kind of animosity surrounding Calvinism in particular emerge? This is one thing I like to say all the time: is there have always been Calvinistic and non-Calvinistic Baptists, and they've often always been in the same associations in the same groups, oftentimes in the same churches, right? It's just the nature of the beast, and that's part of what it means to be Baptist. We don't have a sort of, as clear of a dictated theology, um, even though we've um, we've had really clear statements of faith over the years. But if you look at early Baptist statements of faith, like Second London Baptist Confession from 1689, those different confessions, those are all very clearly reformed. If you go back to the original founding statement of faith for this church even, there's really a lot more reformed even than the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So it's just something to bear in mind that that's, I mean, a lot of our churches exist because of Calvinists who were zealous for missions and getting the gospel to the world. That's a good reminder for all of us, no matter what side of the debate you find yourself on. Um uh, my running joke was a few years ago. People would say, "Do you think the Southern Baptist Convention is going to split?" You know, over Calvinism, and I would say, "I don't know, but I hope not, because I don't want to be with either group alone." And uh, uh, and so and so, uh, we need each other. Is the point that I'm making, right? We really need people in in different camps. So the recent years have really created a lot of animosity, and and that's because there's been a lot of retrieval of these old theologies. We went through a real time in Southern Baptist life in particular where Arminian theology, so really non-Calvinistic theology, was the most prominent. And not, not that there's anything wrong with that, right? But then over the years, people started realizing a lot of our history was more Reformed. The broader evangelical movement, you saw a little bit of a revival of Reformed theology. And so that naturally is going to start seeping into Baptist life as well. So you had a kind of revival of that. And then what started happening was um, pe- a lot of that was rooted in, in personality um, people who are angry, people who are mean-spirited, and then a lot of it, a whole lot of it, was just rooted in misunderstanding of one another. Like a lot of fights, you know? Like every fight I have with my wife, you know? It's usually <laughs> rooted in misunderstanding at some level, right? We love each other and should love each other, but we misunderstand. So a lot of that's in recent years. So that's multifaceted why that's the case. And oftentimes... Oftentimes those things are really rooted in things that happen at a local level as well, I would say. So, um, but the, the, the more heated battles over that are in, in more recent years. Yeah. But there's always, the, the thing about Baptists, there's always some sort of a theological debate happening, which is not all bad, right? It's, it's theological debate. Let me just say, theological debate is a healthy thing. Okay? Now, angry, vitriolic debate is a bad thing. And all you have to do is look around our country to see that. But good, healthy debate's a good thing, and that happens a lot in, in Baptist life and has, for as long as Baptists have existed. Is that enough of a non-answer? Yeah, yeah. Well, they used the term, they to like we'd say, the same Yeah, they were calling things, yeah, they were think, yeah so the question is, would, would they have used similar terms? No, 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 no. Yeah, so this is, this is the Reformation. I mean, John Calvin was a reformer, and so, um, I, you know, really Calvinistic theology before that was Augustinian theology, right? So the Reformers sort of recovered a lot of teaching of the fathers, Augustine and others in particular, and just recovered a high view of God's sovereignty. And um, the first fight just happened to center around Calvin's followers, okay, so uh, a guy named Arminius was a, a Calvinist thinker, and he sort of made some adjustments to Calvinistic thought, and Calvin's other followers, Calvin was dead by the time anybody starts talking about what we would call Calvinism, um, and um, as we know it, and his, his um, followers have a meeting at a place called Dort, so it's called the Synod of Dort, and um, they respond to Arminius's teachings with these kind of five responses, and that's what we now call like the five points of Calvinism. So, Calvinism now, most of the time we talk about it, is just shorthand for a reformed or a real high view of God's sovereignty in soteriology, the way God saves people. Yeah. So, they, yeah, early, especially these Baptists we're talking about, they, they certainly would have understood it that way, but they would have called it either doctrines of grace or um, reformed theology or maybe Calvinism. But yeah, things like high Calvinism are or in particular hyper-Calvinism, were certainly terms that, that they would have used and understood. Yeah. Any other questions? Those are great questions. Well, let's talk a little bit about Baptist distinctives. And I think you'll notice something tonight. Um, um, theologically, we are so similar to so many people around us. And in another sense, Baptists are very diverse theologically. <clears throat> as you've, we've already alluded to, right? You have different streams of Baptist thought. Some who, uh, I mean, if you think about the fact that, you know, the Amish are our cousins, you can start to get a sense of how diverse we are theologically and uh, how diverse our thinking is and how we approach these things are. But you can see the seeds of what it means to be Baptist in all these things, right? And and so in all these traditions. And um, and so I, I used to love it when I was a student at Southern Seminary in Louisville, um, um, when you're a southern uh, a student at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Louisville is a real funny town. It's interesting. It we used to joke, people used to kind of joke and call it the Portland of the South. You know, it was just kind of a granola town. And so, not everyone loved the Baptist Seminary, uh, uh, and and especially how conservative the seminary was, uh, especially because it hadn't always been such. And so, uh, I always had a lot of fun though. I, I worked at a store there in Uh, Louisville and there was a guy who used to come in from another town in Kentucky and he was an independent fundamentalist Baptist um, uh, preacher and I I used to joke with him say man I love it when you come to town because you're the only when you come to town you're the only person in the city that thinks I'm a liberal and I really enjoy that Uh, it's just like a little bit of freedom here you know for just a few minutes Uh, you know everybody else and then I had like the real thick to them is a real thick southern accent, you know, so uh, it was real nice when that guy came to town. Um, but I, we are mixed theologically, okay? There are a lot of theological... Now, by and large, we're evangelical, um, orthodox, and there's certainly... I I really do think that the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, as it stands today, is very representative of the sort of theological distinctives of Baptists in a, in a real... I don't know, a, a mere way, so to speak, a mere Christianity sort of way. So if you look at this, this the statement of faith of our church, the uh, statement of faith of our convention, I would encourage you to just take time to read that, read through it, think through it, pray through it. Um, um, we, we, we hold the Bible above the Baptist faith and message 2000, but by and large, that's how we speak about what we believe. And uh, I think it's very representative and a very big tent way to talk about sort of Baptist orthodoxy through the years. It borrows heavily from previous iterations, but leaves room for, for example, more reformed churches, less reformed churches, all sorts of, of things theologically. So that being said, um, Baptist distinctives are not always uh, theologically unique, right? So, so we want to make sure we understand that, that Baptist distinctives are separate a little bit from theology. Our theology historically is going to be really similar to other um, people who, other Protestants, Um, but then we're going to have distinctives that set us apart. Another thing that's going to be important, especially for those of us who were raised Southern Baptist, and I'm guessing that's a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us were raised Southern Baptist. Um, If you are in here today and you were raised Southern Baptist, um, except for Finn, uh, you you were raised in a time, uh, Finn's too young, but uh, you were raised in a time, by and large, where Southern Baptists were culturally homogenous, okay, where uh, you were born on the cradle roll, and then you and i i was uh, not a southern baptist when i was a little boy but somebody can list everything you are from the time you're born you're a sun but you're a little sunbeam and then at some point you become a ra or a ga and then at some point you become an act or what you know you're all these different things over time and you do the uh you do the ra derby you do all the things you're supposed to do and that's what every southern baptist did and so there was a A very clear, shared cultural experience for Southern Baptists all over the place, okay? Well, obviously, in recent years, that's become less and less true. And in some ways, it's good. In some ways, it's bad. But it's just the reality we live in. So there are a lot of things. I think my battery died. That's okay. Um, There are a lot of things that... um, uh, people understand to be Baptist distinctives that are actually just things that were temporarily a part of Baptist culture at one point or another that people associate with being Baptist. So that's just important to remember as we walk through Baptist distinctives. That's what a lot of us need to do and that's what I wanted to do tonight is I didn't want to talk about what it means to be Southern Baptist. I didn't want to talk about why we should cooperate with our association even though I think we should or our convention which I think we should and our state convention. Um, I think we should, but. But those things are important. But but a hundred years from now, that might not be anything to do with what it means to be Baptist. There may not be a Southern Baptist Convention hundred years from now. I hope there is, but who knows? It might be the Galactic Baptist Federation by then. I don't know. And uh, but but the the reality is um, the reality is that what we do want to do is think what does it mean to irreducibly be Baptist, and 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 what does it mean to distinctively be Baptist, so that. 200 years from now, if First Baptist Church is still, in any sense of the word, Baptist, these things would still be true. And certainly, uh, 160 years ago, they, they were true as well as they are today. So we want to think through those things. I'm, I'm going to put Baptist distinctives, and I've, I've worked on this for a while now to try to think through how to make this as clear as possible. I'm going to put them under two headings tonight. Okay? The first is fidelity, or faithfulness, and the second is liberty, or freedom. So if you just leave here, what, are, what does it mean to be Baptist? Fidelity and liberty. Those are the two things I want, I want you to think about as we work through this. Um, um, first, uh, fidelity. The hallmark of Baptist fidelity. Um, the reason why, so faithfulness. Why, why, we're trying to be, what, what are we trying to do? We're trying to be faithful to God. That's the that's desire that Baptists have. Now, bear in mind... I am not saying we are the only people who have fidelity, okay? Plenty of people desire to honor the Bible. Praise God. I'm so thankful um, for folks that want to honor the Bible, honor God's word. But, but the, the hallmark, the cornerstone of Baptist life is Biblicism, uh, just a radical commitment to the Bible. We Baptists have a pronounced commitment to the Bible um, and, and recognize the Bible as the authority, the norming norm of authority in church and denominational life. So Baptists have a very distinct commitment to the scriptures. And that's not to say other denominations don't, but we are less beholden to tradition perhaps than some other denominations are. And so we find ourselves regularly going back to the Bible and holding the Bible as a magisterium that is over tradition. So, for example, in, in Roman Catholic tradition, they're going to hold to a little more of a capital T tradition than we would or a lot more of a capital T tradition where tradition can often trump the Bible in certain situations. Now, some Baptists let little t tradition trump the Bible, um, but that's anti-Baptist. That's not because they're Baptist, right? Uh, that's despite being Baptist. They lose that. So there's a pronounced commitment to the Bible among uh, Baptists, and that's the hallmark of what it means to be faithful as a Baptist is to be faithful to the Bible. So that's another reason why we don't interpret the Bible through the lens of the Baptist faith and message. We interpret the Baptist faith and message through the lens of the Bible. And that's not to say that the creeds and confessions, including our own, are not helpful for us, or that we hold the, hold that they have no authority. But what we say is uh, the Apostles' Creed or Baptist Faith and Message 2000 holds authority in as much as it reflects the truth of the scriptures. And we think they speak well of the Bible, but at the same time we're always willing to change whatever we need to change in order for it to line up with the Bible. Um, And this leads to a sort of another understanding of Baptists, and that's conversionism. Baptists hold high a view of authentic faith in Christ. So Um, We don't practice things like confirmation. We don't um, practice pedo-baptism. And that's another reason because we have a high view of conversion. Now, there are plenty of pedo-baptists who do have a high view of conversion. And for them, I praise God. But there are plenty who don't. There are plenty who let um, these sort of rituals take the place of genuine spirit-wrought heart change. But we are, at our very nature, conversionists. We want people to be saved, right? And it's one of the things that I've always loved um it's, it's one of the last things to go, I've noticed, in, in Baptist traditions. Because not, not every Baptist tradition has held fast to Biblicism. Um, but I have noticed in almost every Baptist tradition, no matter how um, I would consider far off the rails they get from the Bible, they still hold to some view of conversionism, right? They are still praying for people to be saved. They still want people to be saved. And uh, I'll, I'll say, even if they're, they don't really believe the gospel, there's something there um, this is sort of, I'll just say, this is my primary test of, of genuine fellowship with other believers, is conversionism. I mean, this is something people think about a lot. Um, this is kind of my line I like to draw. Um, if someone really believes people are sinners and they need to be saved, um, and that they're saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm on board. Like, we can, I'll go door to door witnessing with them. So I have Anglican friends and other friends who still hold to conversionism, but you can kind of see usually once the Bible's lost, Authentic conversion is lost eventually, but it's it's a big it's a big important part of what it means to be Baptist is to hold to conversionism. Um, another another aspect of Baptist fidelity is something I alluded to earlier: it's separatism. And another way to talk about this sort of separatism, maybe the the hallmark of Baptist separatism, is what we call holding to having a believer's church. You've probably heard me talk about this before. I, I think the church membership ought to consist of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ exclusively so this is a a important part of Baptist tradition so nobody's a member of the church until they're saved and baptized and so that's the way that we ensure that the church is a believer's uh, church so historically then Baptists have held what's called covenant membership um, as part of what it means to have a believer's church that Baptists covenant together and we have a church covenant here that we look at and and we ask people to live by and um, this is a a baptist hallmark that that we need to remember Um, another aspect of separatism is believers baptism Um, that you don't enter into the church by baptism until you are a believer until you've been saved and so we want to make sure that's part of what it means for for baptists to be separatists this kind of rises out of a separatist impulse but also is confirmed By biblicism, I would argue that it seems like in the Bible, everyone who was baptized had also been a believer. Now, I want to mention one way that Baptists have abused this over the years. Um, This kind of separatism can become a sort of hyper-separatism. Not that we would know anything about that as Baptists, right? But you can can start to become, um, if you're not careful, uh, legalists and fundamentalists, In trying to separate yourself from the world, you think maybe we need to go a little beyond God's word to make sure we're extra separate. Well, um, we can't do a better job than God. And we can see the way that certain breeds and forms of fundamentalism and legalism have done a lot more damage than help, right, to the Baptist cause and to the cause of the gospel. So that's something we have to guard about even so separatism doesn't mean that we, we want to be angry about against everyone else or build a big wall up around the church. Now, everyone's welcome to come here, but the point is that we mean anyone can join the church as long as they uh, put faith in Jesus and are, and are baptized. Um, a word about believers' baptism as well, why we require that for church membership, um, I don't think you have to be baptized to go to heaven. okay? Um, that's one thing that distinguishes us from, for example, uh, Church of Christ or or other denominations that are similar that would hold to baptismal regeneration uh, sometime I'll tell you the story about uh, me getting in an argument with a church of Christ minister in my study here one day he said he's doing a project for school and next thing I know I'm against the ropes uh, and uh, anyway I'll, I'll tell you all that story well, I have probably told you that story but anyway I'll tell it again one day don't worry I'll tell it and um, but uh, 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 we, we don't believe in baptismal regeneration so perhaps you might find it a strange thing to think that uh, I don't think that you need to be baptized to go to heaven, but I do think you need to be baptized to join First Baptist Church. It's like uh, it's like one of my favorite King of the Hill quotes. Um, uh, when Hank's niece says, Uncle Hank, God's only got ten rules, and he's a lot more important than you, you know. And, uh, well, the, the reason for this is that I do think, though, that... that What we hold to are visible principles that match God's invisible principles that you can't see. I I can't see whether or not you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, right? I can see evidence of that. I think clear evidence. But there's no way for me to really know. There's no, like, special sign. There's, you know, nothing comes up on your forehead when you're genuinely saved. I just don't know for sure. Um, All I know is what you tell me. And so God knows, though, and so he'll let anyone who's had a change of heart into heaven. Anyone whose heart's been circumcised, he'll, he'll let them into heaven, um, unquestionably, but by grace through faith. Um, however, uh, we are the church made visible, right? We deal with things that can be seen. And so according to the Bible, the way to make a public profession of faith is through baptism. The way we say we are a Christian outwardly, the way we describe to the world what's happened in our hearts Is through baptism. And so I just don't have the authority to admit someone into the church that belongs to the Lord if they're not willing, right, to submit to God's means by which he says this is how you tell people you're a Christian. And for us, we understand this biblically to mean that you're baptized as a believer and you're baptized by immersion. And this seems to be the way the earliest church baptized. I've mentioned the Dadache and uh, recently and in special circumstances pouring was allowed and, and I would certainly in special circumstances allow pouring. But the word baptizo that we get the word baptized from means to immerse. So um man, do I think there are lots of people who have never been immersed or are gonna be in heaven? Absolutely. But I don't have the authority to not lead the Lord's church the way it seems like the Lord wants his church led. Um so we have to we have to remember those things. Uh, a fourth distinction under fidelity, before we move on really quickly, um, is biblical orthodoxy and or evangelicalism, an evangelical tendency. So Orthodoxy just means Baptists by and large, throughout the centuries have been a people committed to, to, to holding to the evangelical faith okay and, and i don 't mean that like in the modern sense in fact, I love uh, david bebbington 's sort of understanding of evangelical. Uh, evangelicalism. He 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 says four things constitute evangelical religion since the Reformation, it's, and, and evangelical just means God, the evangel is the gospel. So this is gospel-centered Christianity, um, biblicism, crucicentrism, thats a focus on the cross, conversionism and activism. Your faith put, gets put to action. So those things have always characterized Baptists. There have certainly been seasons where Baptists uh, and groups of Baptists have. Have wanted to move past orthodoxy, move past the Bible, but by and large, that's what Baptists have been known for. So that's what we understand as fidelity, Baptist distinctives, and in, infidelity. Um, and if you do have a question about that, let's just give it just one moment. I'm going to move really quickly through the second half of this, and then we'll 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 open up for questions. So don't don't think I'm going to s- s- skip over your questions. All right. The second thing. So first, fidelity. Second of all, liberty or freedom. Uh, And our view of liberty and freedom is not this sort of libertinism, uh, just this total freedom anyone has from anything that characterizes our understanding of freedom in the modern age, but it's a biblically-based liberty that's rooted in a very precious doctrine that's called the priesthood of every believer. Okay? And this is something that was recovered through the Reformation, uh, the idea of the priesthood of every believer. You don't need me to have access to God. Okay? Okay? We, we do not have any sort of magisterial authority in the Baptist church. There's no one who has any authority over you except as what? Brother Matt. That's why often Baptists call their clergy brother, right? Uh, and it's a reminder of the equality. Um, I, I like to do just little things um, as a pastor. Now, we don't have a, a huge tradition of wearing vestments or robes or anything like that. But there's one reason like I... Dress like a layman. Um, that's one reason. It's one reason I sit on, on the floor and not on the stage, just to reinforce. I don't, think, I don't think everyone who's ever done this is enforcing some sort of magisterialism or whatever else, but those are little things I like to do to remind everyone that there is no clergy-laity distinction, <laughs> that I'm, a, I'm, I'm one among you. I'm am a sheep even as I'm uh, a shepherd. This priesthood of every believer results in freedom, um, um, soul freedom. Only you will stand before God, okay? Only you will face the judgment, and each individual believer needs to know that one day they'll stand before the judgment seat. I won't be there. Um, um, uh, Bart Barber, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, won't be there. Uh, Craig Carlisle, our DOM, won't be there. Rick Lance won't be there. it just be you. And so we, we recognize this, that you have access to God and that you have freedom to make the choices you need to make as a Christian. Now, this is another area that that has been abused by some in the Baptist tradition. Uh, Some people have used this idea of the priesthood of every believer and ultimately soul freedom and soul competency, these sorts of things, as an excuse to sort of believe anything they want. Okay, well, we're still accountable to Christ. We're still accountable to his word. We're still accountable to the gospel. We can't just believe any unorthodox view we want, but we have to be really careful This idea, though, of the priesthood of every believer gives rise to our understanding of the autonomy of the local church. Each and every local church is autonomous. We're not owned by the SBC. We're not owned by anyone else. First Baptist Church uh, under Christ is the authority at First Baptist Church. So we believe in the autonomy of the local church, which results in congregationalism. We believe in congregationally governed um, churches. So historically, Baptists have had all sorts of different variations and shades of polity, but at the very core of all those things have been a sort of robust congregationalism. Some have a higher view of pastoral authority, some a lower, but by and large, congregationalism wins the day. But we also believe in cooperation, friendly, willing cooperation between churches is important to Baptists. You see that in the early Baptist confessions that are put together. You see that in early associationalism. And you see that even now in works like the one we're a part of, the Southern Baptist Convention, where we, in friendly ways, cooperate uh, with one another. That leads me to the last aspect of, of freedom or liberty that's important to Baptists, and that's religious liberty. And I alluded to this earlier, but Baptists are passionate about, and historically have been passionate about religious liberty, and not just for Baptists, Okay. I want to make that really clear because every few years there's some big kerfuffle about some Baptist saying some other religion ought to have religious liberty too. And people say, well, they're going to turn all our churches into mosques uh, because they think Muslims should have religious liberty. Nothing could be further from the truth, right? It's just we remember when we were persecuted. <laughs> and, and we think if, if there is not religious liberty for every religion, then one day there won't be religious liberty for Baptists. And, and the, the impetus behind religious liberty ultimately is this. I'll put the gospel up against anything. I believe that every person's soul will stand alone before God. Each person will stand alone before God. And I don't care what competition God gets. God's going to win, ultimately. Okay? And, And the places where religious liberty dies are places where you get a sort of soulless, spiritless religion that's not Christianity either. So I don't care whether there's a lot of people who are another religion versus a lot of people who think they're Christian but aren't saved. I want to make sure the gospel is flourishing, and that usually happens best in places where there's religious liberty and religious uh, freedom. So why be Baptist? Um, I find these two major aspects, these two big pillars of um, uh, liberty and fidelity, I find these things to be strengths, and by and large, these are the reasons why I have chosen to be Baptist. Uh, um, I... Starting in seventh grade, went to a Baptist church and became a Baptist. At that moment, my dad led us to a Baptist church in that way. Um, but then by the time I went to college, I went to a Baptist college. But I still felt the freedom to make a different decision, um, to, to do something else denominationally. Um, but I've chosen to remain Baptist because of these things. And there are reasons, I think, why our church can gladly be Baptist. I love the fact that we can emphasize what we choose to emphasize. We're allowed to relish and cherish our own emphases, our own distinctives, in the midst of the broader Baptist fellowship, so I think these are compelling reasons to be Baptist, good reasons to be Baptist, um, and um, I hope you'll choose to be Baptist too. No, I'm just kidding, but uh, you know, I hope, I hope, uh, I hope this is a, a good, a good vision and view of what it means to be Baptist, and uh, something we joyfully are here, something I certainly joyfully am. And now at this time, I'll open up for any questions anybody has, and remind me, I'm going to do my best to repeat. Any questions you might have? I won't say your name in case you don't want it on the internet. But uh, so the people online can hear what the question was before I answer. It. Judy, up. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it has been said as a reliable statement: all Baptists are liars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I would. So the question is, um, some Baptist churches, um, I was understood to be said to have said that maybe they use baptism like that, but I wouldn't say that. I would say separatism. Okay, which ba- baptism, our view of sort of believers' baptism flows out of our view of separatism. That's it's really kind of rooted in our understanding of conversion in a believer's church, right? So, so therefore, the church and the world ought not to be just one circle. There's a, you know what I mean? There's a. a a separation, um, because we think people are authentically saved out of the world, right? So I do think, though, there are churches who take, and historically Baptists, have gone, taken separatism beyond the letter, even, of the law. (laughs) Not just beyond the spirit of the law, but like, for example, early Baptists here in America, any sort of worldly, what they would call worldly amusement, was totally out of bounds for a Christian. So even, like, one of my heroes, like Spurgeon, would have said things like going... To the theater, and and not like PG theater, like you know, like any theater, you know, not just R-rated plays, like anything, any kind of worldly amusements. You guys have probably heard any kind of anything that smacked, that could be seen at all as something that might be wrong. You know, we we should, should get away from. It's just not what the Bible teaches, right? And I, I think sometimes joyfully participating in things that are good things that aren't sinful is a good sign to the world, right? That new wine has been put into new wineskins. So things like dancing, um, worldly amusements, those sorts of things. And then generally just a kind of pervasive um, um, uh, sort of attitude and spirit of legalism can come over separatist churches if we're not careful. Are those, is that a good answer to the question? Yes, I understand. Great. So baptism would be downstream from that. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, I mean, I'm sure there's been somebody who's been haughty-taughty about baptism at some point or another. I mean, I thought what you meant that, like, maybe there's a abuse of baptism where you have to continue to be baptized over and over and over again to be redeemed. Oh. No, that's a great thing. She said maybe there's, there. she thought I might mean that there's been people who advocate for being baptized over, over, and over again to kind of be free from those things. And, yeah, that's kind of happened, too. That's kind of a mix between legalism, fundamentalism, and revivalism. Not to be confused with revival, but the kind of attempt to manufacture revival. And you have people who want to rebaptize people all the time. Well, maybe you weren't really saved. Now get saved. Oh, now you got to be baptized kind of thing. Yeah, and so, yeah, um, that, that to me kind of runs roughshod over the assurance of the believer and... Um, And I think, yeah, it's a legalistic trap concerning believers' baptism as well. So that's a great, yeah, that is an example as well. Yeah. Not what I meant, but a great point, Judy. Thank you. It's a great, that's a great application. I'm glad I mentioned your name now. (laughs) You needed credit for that. (laughs) Any other questions? else we need to talk about? I won't, I'm going to try not to do it this time. Yes, you there. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I feel like the non denomination still baptized believers. They don't practice infant baptism. They don't they're, they're baptistic. Like, they, yeah, they still yeah. tend to adhere to a lot of the Baptist practices, but they just refuse the label I Yeah. I the the question is why do Baptists tend to spin off more quote non denominational churches than let's say it seems like Presbyterians or Methodists or other denominations. A couple of reasons. Just my. This is my impulse. Um, it's sort of like, um, well, we're free anyway. You know, what I mean, kind of once that seal's broken, it's kind of easier to kind of split off. That's one of the biggest criticisms that Catholics maintain of the Reformation, right? Is like, see what happens when you lose this kind of thing. In fact, interestingly enough, that was one of the biggest during the Civil War. Catholics critiqued democracy almost more than you know. The American experiment almost more than anyone else, especially continental Catholics. And they said, "This is exactly what would happen when you got that sort of freedom. When you lose the sort of magisterium that we have in king and country and church." Um, and so it, it is. It is true, right? That you you once that seal's broken, it's just a lot easier to do, right? Um, but then, second of all, um, I think. Um, our this is a challenge we have our fights have nowhere else to go okay uh you know if you're a presbyterian church and there's a big conflict presbytery comes and handles it you know what i'm saying i mean they at least help that's not to say the presbyterian church can't split or it's perfect or anything else but we've got to handle our problems at the local level and usually those splits are people who are frustrated with another group of people Okay, And it's usually over perfunctory, superficial issues. I'm not saying they don't matter. I mean, they're over style, approach, typically generational, those kinds of things. I've noticed very rarely some deep theological issues. Sometimes they'll be over um, manifestation of spiritual gifts, cessationism, things like that. Sometimes that's the case. But again, I think they have to be done at the local level. And I wish that churches that get down to that place... Felt more of a willingness to have Paul and Barnabas moments, um, where they amicably decide it's time to go in two different ways, rather than feeling like, you know, we've we've got to we've got to split or be angry or whatever else. Sometimes, sometimes there's been good that's been done by people choosing to go different directions. You know, that's two that's two bodies at that point, not not one. So, um, all that being said, I mean, I'm I, uh, I think that's why. Some of it's baked in. I mean, it is kind of baked in and some of what it means to live in a fallen world, but also um, it tends to be local issues that precipitate those things. And and we don't really have somebody who can come tell us what to do. We have somebody who who could. We just, Baptists tend not to invite people to tell them what to do. (laughs) I'll do whatever I want. I only answer to the Bible. You know, okay, uh, I don't think that means what you think it means, but okay, you know. <laughs> any other questions? What is the basis of the Catholic saying, as we believe the priesthood is the leader and they believe the opposite, which I can't find any source in Scripture for the way they... I, I I am not. Let me just say this is a question about Catholic theology and the hierarchy of the Catholic Church um, as opposed to kind of how I understand the priesthood of the believer. Why, why do Catholics hold to this sort of magisterium, this top-down authority? Ultimately, um, I think it kind of rises and falls on the papacy. Now, just to say I'm not super familiar with Catholic thought and I've not done a deep dive, so this is if some Catholic apologist is Wants an example of an ignorant Baptist, they'll probably find this and use it on their podcast or something. But I'll just say my first thought is um, that it kind of rises and falls on the authority of the papacy. And and, and really, that um, um, upon this rock I will build my church, the view of, of Peter as this sort of first pope is where that's rooted. And then you can read through the scriptures, and if you start with a papacy, you can take all sorts of, I mean, there are places really clear in the Bible, okay? All you Baptists, cover your ears. But there are places where it says clearly, obey your leaders. Okay? I know we don't like to think about obeying pastors in Baptist churches, right? Because we're congregationalists. But, but there, there is a view of pastoral authority in the Bible, right? Now, I think that means, in as much as they're speaking the words of God, listen to them. They're, they're, they're trying to help you. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that means a, 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 a obey if, if Alexander turns into a tyrant. Do not listen to what I have to say because I'm not under the authority of Christ, right? But they take those kinds of that view of pastoral authority and attach it to the papacy and kind of and work it down like that. But then they also take the different words in the Bible for pastor. I think all apply to a pastor of the local church, bishop, um, episcopos. These different and they and they apply it to their their hierarchy in that way. Um. So yeah, they they see a, a view, and then. Reformation churches that retain a hierarchy um, uh, do something kind of similar, but it's just a pastoral authority that's over a group of churches, if that makes any sense. So it's called a presbytery uh, in Presbyterian churches and others. There's synods, there's different groups that have authority over the churches. It's more of a top-down authority. But um, I still think an autonomous local church with local authority is nearest to what the Bible describes. That's my real quick understanding of it, but it really rises and falls with the understanding of the papacy. But that the other thing I will say though, also, they do have a high view of capital. You know, Catholics are going to hold to what what we describe as capital T tradition. So, the papacy's been received, and and the church believes in the papacy, and so the the church um, has, a, and the church's tr- capital T tradition has a very high authority really on par with scripture in practice in Catholic life. So that helps drum up the idea of the papacy as well. As I understand. I'm less familiar with that. With all the autonomy, how do you like protect against low-games? What I got had friends who are very anti badness because of the experience they had in the Baptist church. Yeah. Do you mean like they could call themselves Baptist or they could like come here and join? and No, no. I have mean, people that, you know, you talk to them and they're not really to reject the gospel because of the experience they had at the Baptist church. And they're really rejecting something that a Baptist church, which really isn't even bad Baptist. Most yeah, that's a that's a hard risk. Yeah, the question is, all right, what do we do about, like, rogue churches or whatever, who just do whatever under the banner of Baptists? Yeah, but, the, I mean, that's a fair point, but there are also bad Presbyteries, right? And so what do you do with the – you got a real mess there. What do you do when the, you know, when the Pope's selling indulgences? You know, you nail 95 theses to the, to the door and change the world, baby. That's what You know, I mean, so I, um, I think, like uh, – uh, but what I guess I mean, though, is that, that's a challenge, just the, the term Christianity. And people are always trying this, you know. I've you guys in college that called it the way, because instead of Christianity got to distance yourself for that. And then I think a lot of people like kind of roll their eyes at people church taking baptism of their name or whatever. I don't have any plans to do that but I don't feel like there's a necessity for it. Like, um, uh, but I get why people are doing that, right? It's to distance themselves. people who have a bad view of baptists you know what i mean but problem is now some people have a bad view of community churches you know what i'm saying so uh i mean we've got challenges no matter what so for me what we have to do is just continue to preach the gospel trust ourselves to a faithful god and just recognize people are going to give the lord a bad name they always have they always will we just got to do our best to make it really clear and and that's i you know i kind of i kind of use different avenues to make it really clear i mean it's like when i write you guys a letter about the spc that's one reason i like put it on facebook you know because i then if somebody really wants to know like is matt on board with this or that or whatever else people outside our church can kind of look and realize oh well first baptist church no matter what they do is going to do what first Baptist church wants to do they're just partnering together to get missions you know missionaries to the field so that's part of what what i'm trying to do to help Kind of make sure, not that I'm trying to distance myself from all these other Baptists, whatever. We're all sinners, but, um, but but Baptist is not trademarked, right? You can you can be you can be anybody can call themselves Baptist. It's a movement. It's it's a grassroots movement, and um, not anyone can call themselves Southern Baptist, right? I mean, you, there are some characteristics and parameters for that, but um, so yeah, that's that's the best I know to best way I know to how to kind of understand it. Any other questions? Yeah, Will. Uh, why did uh, all the churches, well, so, I don't know, maybe it's all of them, but why did they start all the weird practices that weren't in the Bible? Yeah, why did churches start a lot of weird practices that weren't in the Bible? Um, well, most of the weird practices, well, first of all, there are plenty of weird practices that are in the Bible, so let's go ahead and say that. <laughs> you know, I mean... Um, we do weird stuff. You know, when you, if you want to join this church, I have to dunk you in water in front of a crowd. It's just kind of a strange, you know, where else is that happening? You know what I mean? Um, uh, and um, we, we eat a piece of bread and drink this cup together. We do some kind of weird things already. Um, but a lot of the, quote, weird practices will have some seed in the Bible. So like probably the one we find the weirdest, is easiest for us to dunk on is like snake handling. Right? You heard about this, snake handling? Um, it's where people handle snakes. And, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, just so it's clear. And uh, uh, that comes from a, from a passage in the, the what we would call the longer ending of Mark. And there's a question whether or not it was in the original text. But nonetheless, it says you'll tread on serpents and, and won't be afraid. You'll drink poison and won't kill you. So there are churches who take that and say, well, that's a test of our faith to pick up a serpent and if we have enough faith, it won't bite us. And some of them even drink poison to prove that their faith that it won't kill them. Well, that's clearly an abuse of the Bible, I think, right? But it's kind of there. So a lot of those, what we would see as really strange practices, are, are taking the Bible and twisting it or abusing it. Does that make any sense? But just, just as a reminder, um, one man's weird practice is another man's normal, you know. And uh, so I think that's just something for us to bear in mind and remember. Any other questions? It's getting a little later here. I'm sorry. All right. If you do have any other questions, if there's anything else you want to know, ever, whatever, I'm available. I'm an open book. We've covered a lot of ground, a lot of controversial topics. But thank you so much for being here. Stay in fellowship. I think there's more coffee back here. I think Cole's made several gallons. We were having supply chain issues for a minute. Now we've got a glut of coffee. So uh, God bless you all. Thanks for being here. And I look forward to seeing you on Wednesday night.